Hello, I am Michael Penny. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scripture references. And I'm William Henry. In this podcast, we're going to explore what happened when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. As he approached the city coming from Jericho through Bethany over the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples on a very special task. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. And that's in Luke 19.31. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? They found the colt. Someone asked them that question. And when they told the man that Jesus had said what he had said, he just let them have the colt. So do you think that was another example of Jesus' powers, or do you think he set it up in advance? Oh, no, no way of knowing, really. But one thing is clear. The taking of the colt was an important element of what Jesus was about to do, to ride into Jerusalem. Yeah, it really must have been an amazing sight, wasn't it? Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Oh, yeah. And there was obviously quite a crowd. If we read in Matthew and Mark's gospel, both of those suggest that he had a crowd surrounding him as he was leaving Jericho. And they probably picked up more people on the way to Jerusalem as everyone was going to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Luke tells us what happened in chapter 19, verses 36 to 37. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. But what was the point of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey of all things? Well, well, actually, Luke doesn't tell us. But thankfully, Matthew explains. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's in Matthew 21, verses 4 to 5. Yeah, that quotation comes from Zechariah chapter 9. So Jesus did this deliberately to fulfill a prophecy that had been made in the Old Testament about something that Israel's king would do. Exactly. But you know, there is also an interesting parallel with Solomon, David's son. In what way? Well, when David announced Solomon was to be the next king, he set Solomon on his own mule and had him ride before the people. So there you've got our son of David riding on a mule, and, and here we have the son of David riding on a donkey. So do you think the people saw the parallel between the two? Well, I don't know, really, maybe. But I think the focus is really on Zechariah 9, because Matthew refers to that passage. Yeah, besides, Zechariah lived sometime after David and Solomon, so David obviously didn't do that to fulfill Zechariah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Anyway, let's see what the crowd were shouting. There were a whole range of things they were shouting, and we need to look at all four Gospels to get the full picture. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's Matthew 21, verse 9. Then, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And that's Mark 11 verses 9 to 10. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And that's Luke 19 verse 38. And then lastly, Hosanna, blessed in, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And that's John 12, verse 13. Yeah, that's a, a lot of very important statements about Jesus, isn't it? Son of David, but also coming in the name of the Lord, coming to set up the kingdom of our father David, the King of Israel. And they were all true. Yeah, yeah, they were. And it's interesting to see the way the Pharisees responded to all this teaching. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. That's in Luke 19, verse 39. Yes, and these were the Pharisees that were in the crowd going up to Jerusalem. They were not the, the Jerusalem Pharisees. I guess they were maybe a bit nervous about a crowd bursting into Jerusalem proclaiming a new king. It might have caused a bad reaction from the Romans. Yeah, but it's clear that Jesus fully endorsed what the crowd was chanting. See how he replied to the Pharisees in Luke 19, verse 40. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. But, you know, Jesus' ride into Jerusalem has always struck me as a bit strange. It wasn't really his usual style. He didn't usually look for publicity. I mean, crowds followed him everywhere he went, yes, but frequently he tried to get away from them. He would heal people and then tell them not to tell anyone. Demons who said that he was the son of God were very quickly put to silence. And yet here he was riding into Israel's capital city, allowing the crowd to openly proclaim that he was the heir to David's throne, coming in the name of the Lord. It was really provocative. Yeah, yeah, it was. But I think the times had changed. Jesus knew he was in the final stage of his ministry. I think his concern had been that the people had a wrong view of what the Christ, their Messiah, David's heir, was going to be like. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it did, didn't it? I think they assumed he would be a military hero, hero who would liberate them from the Romans. If they had tried to make him king by force, as, as we know they, they wanted to do at one time, at least one time, then it could have scuppered his real ministry and brought disaster on the people. Yeah, but now as he's approaching the end game, he knew that he only had a week to go before he was to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. And probably he no longer felt the need to keep quiet about his true identity. Yeah, you could be right there, yeah. So immediately before the ride in Jerusalem, remember, in Luke 18, 35 to 42, it tells us that he healed a blind beggar just outside of Jericho. And this blind beggar addressed him as son of David. And the Lord made no attempt to stop him from using that title. But I think Jesus was well aware of what was going to happen to him and the crowd that were now shouting Hosanna and seeing him as their Messiah. They would very soon be manipulated into shouting crucify him when they saw him standing chained as a prisoner before Pilate. Yeah, 
Yeah. Anyway, as he approached the city, at what we might have thought was his moment of greatest triumph, we read this in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. As he approached Jerusalem, saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So what's going to happen? The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And that's in Luke 19 verses 43 to 44. So because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I mean, I think that was Israel's tragedy. They didn't recognize that their Lord and their God was among them. Instead, they rejected him. Judas betrayed him and handed him over to the Romans, who ultimately crucified him. Right. Hang on a second. I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, if you think of it from the disciples' point of view, it must have been a wonderful day for them. Here was their Lord and their Master recognized at last. He's being proclaimed by the people as he rode into Jerusalem as the son of David to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. They must have thought that the setting up of the kingdom was going to happen very soon. Well, possibly they did. But we must remember that Jesus had repeatedly warned them that he would be handed over to the Gentiles and put to death. He had given them this warning as recently as Luke chapter 18, the, the chapter before his ride into Jerusalem. Yes, and having ridden into Jerusalem, Jesus immediately set himself on a collision course with the Jewish leaders. Oh, that's true. The first thing he did on reaching the city was to go into the temple area and drive out those who were selling animals for sacrifice. So what was going on there? Well, let's see what Luke 49 verses 45 to 46 say. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what was being sold there? Well, I think this business took place in the outer temple courts, the so-called court of the Gentiles. It was really, I think, to provide a service for the worshippers, especially those Jews from far away, the Jews of the dispersion who had traveled from other countries to come to sacrifice animals. First of all, there were money changers. We read about them in Mark 11, verse 15. And they would convert the currency of the pilgrims to some currency that the temple could accept. And then there were those who sold the doves for sacrifice. Well, all that sounds good. So what was the problem then? Well, it seems to have got corrupted. Maybe the exchange rates were expensive and the cost of the doves, which were certified as acceptable for sacrifice, was extortionate. Certainly, I think here in Luke, but also, I think we'll find in Matthew 21, the Lord seems to be complaining about the way the worshippers were being fleeced rather than the practice of selling doves as such. Okay, so that is why the Lord called it a den of robbers. 
but the Jewish leaders would not have been happy about him driving the traders out of the temple courts, would they? No, and immediately they planned to kill him. We read that in Luke 19, verses 47 to 48. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So the Jewish leaders were responding with hostility and aggression uh, Mm -hmm. to Jesus and and the challenge that he was posing to them. One day, as he was teaching in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And that's in Luke 20, verses 1 to 2. Yeah, but um, what do you think uh, they meant by these things? Well, I mean, think think what's happened. Here was this country yokel from Galilee riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with a huge crowd claiming to be the son of David, Israel's rightful king. And then he disrupted the commerce of the temple by throwing everyone out. And now he's teaching in the temple and the people were hanging on his every word. It's no wonder their noses were out of joint. (laughs) That's true, yeah. So how did they react? Well, they tried to trap him with trick questions. You see, they were afraid of the people, so they just couldn't march up to him and have him arrested. So they tried to make him say something that would upset either the people or upset the Romans. They were they were really the, trying to goad him. So this was this was the first loaded question. Tell us by what authority you were doing these things. They said, "Who gave you this authority?" Luke twenty verse two. That's right. So if he'd said he came on God's authority, they might have been able to accuse him of blasphemy or even argue that he was mad. But he didn't fall into their trap, did he? He replied. I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? That's in Luke 20, verse 4. Oh, Luke says they discussed this for a while because they realised they were in a catch-22 situation. If they had said John's baptism was from heaven, they would have to explain why they had not believed in John. But if they said it was from man, they were afraid that the people would stone them since the people regarded John as a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It's in Luke 20, verse 7 to 8. Well, that was only the first trick question. The second one was aimed at getting Jesus into trouble with the Romans. Luke 20, verse 20 says this. Keeping a close watch on him, They sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Okay, so what was the question? Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? in Luke 20, verses 21 to 22. Well, that's a a really tricky one, isn't it? If he said, yes, it is lawful, it is right, then he could be accused of being a collaborator with the Romans. 
But if he said it was not right, then he could be reported to the Romans and he'd be in trouble with them. Yeah, but but he saw through his deception, didn't he? Um, this is interesting. Luke 20, 24 to 25 tells us what he said. Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. A brilliant response, isn't it? There's no answer to that. No, there wasn't. But they weren't finished. Next, some of the Sadducees came to Jesus with a question. Sadducees? So how again were they different from the Pharisees? Well, the Sadducees were almost all priests, though not all priests were Sadducees. But unlike the Pharisees, they only accepted the first five books as the Old Testament as authentic scripture. And perhaps most significantly, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This life was it. There was no life after death. Um, They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead like most of the Jews did, didn't they? No, they didn't. And Luke says this in chapter 20, verse 27. Yeah, that's right. So the Sadducees came up with a fantastic scenario based on Moses' rule. And this rule stated that if a man dies childless, his brother, if he has one, should marry his widow. Now listen to this. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It's in Luke 20, verses 29 to 33. What a situation. I don't think I'd like to share my wife with six other guys, not even in resurrection. (laughs) Me neither will. No, most definitely not. Anyway, see how Jesus responded to that. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. And that's in Luke 20, verses 34 to 36. Right, so life in resurrection is not just a continuation of this life with all the problems removed. It's going to be something very, very different. Oh, yeah, very different. Anyway, the the Lord wasn't finished. He had something more to say to the the Sadducees, I mean, about the reality of resurrection. And he did this by pointing to the book of Exodus, which was one of the books that the Sadducees revered. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And that's in Luke 20, verses 37 to 38. Yeah, that's quite a strange argument, isn't it? I mean, when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, he introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But surely they were all dead. So how can that prove that he's the God of the living? Well, um, unlike us... God is not limited by time. See how Luke says, 
there, for to him all are alive. God enter a covenant relationship with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And long after their deaths, he sees them as alive because they will be resurrected and will live with him in glory. The argument wouldn't hold if there was no resurrection. Right. And, and no doubt the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who did believe in the resurrection were delighted to hear him answer the Sadducees as well as he did. Oh, yeah. See, see what Luke tells us here. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's in Luke 20, verses 39 to 40. Well, maybe they had nothing more to ask him, but he still had plenty to tell them. In verses 9 to 19 of Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants. Yeah, and this parable occurs in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And it comes immediately after Jesus had his authority question. The details of the story are rather unrealistic. But as we've discussed in earlier pod podcasts in this series, um, this was a technique Jesus frequently used to make a parable more memorable. Yeah, that's right. The basic story is about the owner of a vineyard who rented it out to some tenant farmers and went away. And sometime later, he sent a servant to collect some of the fruit, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Eventually, he sent three servants, and they ill-treated all of them in the same way. So presumably, at this point, any sensible owner would send in his army. Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? But that isn't what he does. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. That's in Luke 20, verse 13. Oh, <laughs> I don't think this is going to end too well, is it? When the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's in Luke 20, verses 14 to 15. Yeah, and it's only at that point that the vineyard owner takes action. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's in Luke 20, verses 15 to 16. Okay, um, let, let's hold it here for a moment. <clears throat> Jesus is telling the story against the Jewish leaders who had refused to recognize him as the one sent by God to them. So that's the primary application of this story, is it? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, over the previous hundreds of years, God had sent his servants, the prophets, to the nation, but they had rejected them, ill-treated them, and in some cases had them murdered. But God, like the vineyard owner, is patient and long-suffering, and he doesn't destroy them immediately. Okay, but finally God sent his son, and here Jesus anticipates the fact that he will be rejected and killed. Yes, the warning's there for them, isn't it? The vineyard will be given to others. Okay, but who are the others, do you think? Well, it's difficult to tell, isn't it? The Lord had frequently condemned this faithless generation of Israel who would bear the penalty for the, all the rejection of God's messengers down through history. I mean, for example, in, in Matthew 23, verses 32 to 36, Jesus says this. 
Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. So the implication, I think, is that the other tenants are a generation of Israelite leadership who would respond. Israel, Israelite leadership? So you don't think that the others meant the Gentiles? No, no, I don't. Um, a vineyard is used in the Old Testament as a picture of Israel. Um, for example, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5 tells a similar par parable about a man who planted a vineyard, but unfortunately it only bore bad fruit. In that chapter, the prophet predicts destruction for the vineyard. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, he says this, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. Ah, so if I have this right, the vineyard is the nation of Israel, and the tenants of the vineyard are the Jewish leaders. Yeah, exactly. The common people don't really feature in Jesus' parable. It's told against the leaders, and Jesus is warning them that they will be replaced by more worthy tenants, if you like. See the way this section of Luke 20 ends here in verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them, that they were afraid of the people. Okay, right. But, um, so the vineyard represents, okay, the nation of Israel and uh, the tenants are the leaders. But there's another symbol that Jesus brings out in this section, and that's the picture of a stone rejected by the builders. In, in Luke chapter 20, verse 17, he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Yeah, the picture there is of a stone which initially was rejected by the builders as worthless, but subsequently was discovered to be the key to the whole structure. So presumably Jesus was referring to himself there. Oh, yes, no doubt. And this imagery was picked up by Peter in his letter in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 7. And it was also picked up by Paul in Ephesians 2.20. In fact, in one of his sermons after Pentecost, Peter accused the Jews directly by saying the following. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's in Acts 4, verse 11. Yeah, but in Luke chapter 20, Jesus doesn't talk about the stone fitting into a building, does he? He talks about the destructive power of the stone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And that's in Luke 20, verse 18. So is there anything about that in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think so. Um, Isaiah speaks about the Lord being a stone that causes men to stumble when he foretells the coming judgment on Israel by Assyria. Listen to what Isaiah says in uh, chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread, and he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble. 
They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. So we get all this Old Testament imagery coming together in Jesus' warnings to Israel. And just as Isaiah pleaded with the people to come to the Lord for sanctuary, so Jesus was pleading to the nation of his day. Yes, he was. But unfortunately, they didn't listen either. But Jesus had one final question for the teachers of the law, which we read in Luke 20, verses 41 to 44. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Oh, sorry, this is a bit confusing, isn't it? Surely the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. That's what the crowd had been chanting as they followed Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Jesus endorsed the proclamation that he was the son of David, Israel's king. Yeah, that's right. He is the son of David. So what's the point of the question? Is it just a funny riddle to wind up the Pharisees? <laughs> no, no, there's more to it than that, I think. He was trying to get them to think more deeply about the true nature of their Messiah as the son of David. Well, the son of David was Solomon, as we mentioned him earlier, and he was a wise king and the nation prospered under his rule. Yeah, but if the Jews thought that the Messiah was to be a son of David in the same mold as Solomon, they were seriously wrong. Uh, this was really a challenge for the people to think of David's son in a much wider context than a narrow, nationalistic, conquering hero which would re-establish a wealthy kingdom. So Jesus finished speaking to the, the Jewish leaders but, and he moved on. He turns away from the crowd and spoke directly to his disciples at that point, though it's clear that the crowd was listening. And he warned them, the disciples, against the teachers of the law because they loved to parade around in rich robes and to be greeted and esteemed everywhere they went. This is what he said in Luke 20, verse 47. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can see why the Pharisees and teachers of the law must have been furious after that. There was no way back for Jesus after that, was there? No, that's right. Luke only reports Jesus' words briefly in a few verses. I mean, that's not what Luke records isn't everything he said. Matthew spends the whole of chapter 23 setting out everything that Jesus said about them, pronouncing seven woes against the Pharisees. Whoa, for them, that really must have been the last straw. So the Jewish leaders, I think, were determined to have him arrested and put to death. That's what they wanted. But they were afraid of the people. So how, how could they go about getting him arrested and put to death? Well, their big chance came when Judas decided to betray Jesus. And that's where we'll pick up the story next time. So thanks very much for listening.